All right, I want to welcome everybody to the master's class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 17. And we're going to be talking today about the promise that changed the world. The promise that changed the world. Now, I hope everybody had a good Christmas. We had a good Christmas at our house. Actually, we're not really going to share it with our boys until tomorrow, 1 o'clock, because you know what happens when wives and their parents want to have Christmas, and, and we want to have Christmas, you got to share. And so we're sharing, and we're holding off to have our Christmas until tomorrow. Uh, but we, we had a good Christmas ourselves, and I look forward to the new year of 2024. Imagine that. We're starting the year 2024. Now, who would have ever thought that we'd make it to year 2024 before the Lord came, huh? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping He comes before then, but you know, still, uh, He's got a day or two here. Uh, I guess one day <laughs> to make it. But, but today, I am going to keep our feet firmly planted in 2023. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to cover the first part of Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And I said last week that this was one of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis and even in the Bible. So I want to dig just a little bit deeper into these verses. I want to do more than just telling the story like I did a couple of weeks ago when we covered the first part of this chapter. So forgive me if I repeat some of the elements of the story about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, because I need to do that to set the stage for what I'm going to be covering today. Now, I want to talk today about the promise that changed the world. We're going to get started in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And it says, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, that means he was 99 years old. Man, that's old, isn't it? Uh, the Lord appeared to Abram. And said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For thy father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now notice that God tells Abraham, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. Now God adds a Hebrew letter to the uh, name Abram. And it is the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And I'm not going to say it because I couldn't say it right anyway. But it's the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And this letter is a key part of the Hebrew word for spirit. And the word for spirit in the Old Testament is the same word for breath or wind. And what God is saying to Abram is that I'm putting my spirit upon you. You are now Abraham. The spirit, the breath of God is moving upon this man in a very special way. And incidentally, in the Bible, the number five represents grace in the Bible. 
Okay? That's what uh, number five is symbolic for. Now, I want you to notice one other change that God made. And most people don't recognize this, but I know you guys are all on, all on top of this because you, you already figured all this out, right? So you will notice that from this point forward in the Scriptures that Sarai, Abram's wife, also had her name changed to Sarah. Okay? Now, they are both pronounced about the same way. But the name Sarah, uh, the, uh, with a A-I on the end of it, means my lady, my princess. And the name Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, means princess of the multitude. So while the name Abraham means father of a great multitude, Sarah's name now means princess of the multitude. Now, is that interesting? Yeah. Did you guys know that? You ever noticed that before? I picked up on that. I started seeing A-H on Sarah's name instead of A-I in the Scriptures, and I started digging in trying to figure out what that was and why that happened. So at the same time that God changed Abraham's name, he changed Sarah's name as well. Now, these verses are one of the most important documents ever written. Far more important than the Declaration of Independence. Far, far more important than the Mayflower Compact. Far, far more important than the Constitution of the United States of America. Because if you understand what God is saying here, then you will be able to understand the history of the world for what God is saying here marks and colors all of the subsequent history that follows it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So what God is saying here is an iron fist upon history. The sovereign God is definitely saying that certain things are going to happen. They're going to be done. And what God is saying here is His plan to bless you and to bless me and to bless the nations of the world. And what God is saying here is going to help us to understand what is happening in our day, in our age, right now in the Middle East. This indeed is a blessing, a promise that has changed the world and it will give us understanding if we today will take the Word of God and let it speak to us as we study together. Now, there are several things that I want you to notice in these verses. First, there is the promise. Now, in the first three verses, God makes a covenant between God and Abraham. And as we can study in other places in the Bible and can even see here, it is an unbreakable covenant. It is an unchangeable covenant, a promise, a contract. It is an immutable covenant. It is a promise that will last unconditionally. And sometimes God makes promises that are conditional promises. That is, God says, listen, if you do this, I'll do that. If you don't do this, then I won't do that, right? That's the way some of the other conditional promises are. But this is an unconditional covenant promise that God has made. It doesn't matter what Abraham did. Now, not only do I want you to notice the promise, but I want you to understand the principle. It is a covenant promise that is based on the principle of grace. It is not due to anything that is inherent in Abraham, not anything that Abraham has done or will do. As a matter of fact, God is doing all of the talking, and Abraham is on his face just listening to God talk to him. As God makes with Abraham a covenant that is based upon the principle of grace. Now I want you to notice also, not only the promise and not only the principle, but the people that are involved. Notice in verse 7, he says, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee. Now, 
What seed is God talking about? What group of people is God talking about? He's talking about the Hebrews. He's not talking about the Arab race, as someone wants to say. He's talking about the Jewish race. Look, if you will, in Genesis 17, 21. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Now notice that God is not talking about Ishmael, who is a progenitor of the Arab race, but he's talking about Isaac, who is a progenitor of the Jews. Now the people that are concerned primarily in this covenant are the Jewish people, the descendants, the seed of Abraham. Now, But I want you to also notice that God is talking here about Abraham's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed, in the fullest sense, is a seed of Abraham. Now, and not only is he talking about a promise and a principle and a people, he's talking about a period, a period of time. Notice in verse 7, it shall be an everlasting covenant. That is, it will never grow old. Never grow old. It will never wear out. It will never be changed. It is an everlasting, therefore an irrevocable, unchangeable covenant. It will last through all of the eons of the ages. Now I want you to notice one other thing. And I want you to notice the place that is involved in God's promise to Abraham. Because not only does it involve a people, but it involves a place. Look, if you will, in verse 8. Chapter 17, verse 8. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said, I'm going to give this land. I'm going to give you this land, Abraham. I'm going to give you the Middle East, or Palestine as some call it. The Holy Land as others call it, or Israel as others call it. And God says, I will give it to you, Abraham, and to your seed, and to your descendants through Isaac, for an everlasting possession. Everlasting possession, right? Now, there are many, many other things included in these verses, but as we've seen it here today, I want us to think for just a moment what God is up to and what God is doing through the people that are called Israel. You see, the eyes of the world right now, and you think about it right now, the entire world is looking upon that tiny state of Israel, right? It's all over the headlines. I could have taught this lesson 50 years ago, and I still would have said the same thing. That all the eyes are upon Israel. They have been for a long time. And that's the way it should be. Because the Jews are the people of destiny. As the Jew goes, so goes the world. The Jew is God's yardstick. The Jew is God's blueprint. The Jew is God's measuring rod. The Jew is God's program for what he is going to do with the other nations of the world. And the Jew and the land are all wrapped up together. And so not only do we need to keep our eye upon the people, but we need to keep our eyes upon the place of those people. What an important place the nation of Israel is. Now I'm talking about that real estate that God calls here the land of Canaan, that he gave to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. Notice that I'm not talking about just that little parcel of land that the Jews now occupy. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you will recall from Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, God promises Abraham, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the greatest river, the river of Euphrates. Which means that all the way from the Nile unto the Euphrates, 
and it stretches in a broad sweep, taking in some 300,000 square miles of territory. Now that is the place that God is now calling the land of Canaan that he has already given to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. Now they're not occupying all that right now, but they will. You got it. When it gets to be the millennial reign of Christ, Israel is going to occupy all of that, uh, all of that territory. Now, he's already given it to Israel. It's theirs. And it's going to be theirs for all of eternity. I don't care what the Arabs say. It's already the Israelites. It already belongs to them. Now, next, I want you to notice how this land of Canaan, this is the geographical center or the very center of the earth. There's an interesting verse over in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, where God says, I have set thee in the midst of nations. In Ezekiel 5, 5. You see, this little, seemingly insignificant parcel of ground is the hub of three mighty continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It is an ancient military and economic crossroads, and it has been called by some the navel of the earth. It is the geographical center of the earth, and in the Bible, when directions are given, directions are always given as north of Israel or south of Israel, and that is God's plan, that they are to be the center of the earth. But not only is it the geographical center, but it is the revelation center. It was from this place that Moses wrote. It was from this place that the prophets spoke. And it was from this place that we received the entire Bible. And not only is it the geographical center and the revelation center, it is the spiritual center because it was here that Jesus Christ was born. It was here that Jesus Christ lived and walked and taught. He never left this place until he left it to go to heaven. And it is here that Jesus died and it is here that Jesus was buried. It is here that Jesus rose and it is the land of Canaan that Jesus Christ is going to come to again when he returns. That's where his feet are going to touch down. Now next, I want you to notice that it is the prophetic center. So it is the geographical center, it is the revelation center, it is the spiritual center, and it's also the prophetic center. Now you take this land of Palestine, this nation, and you'll find that it is the only place, and the Jews are the only people, where their prophecy is minutely foretold centuries before it would come to pass. It is the prophetic center of the world. Now, we also see that it is the storm center of the entire world. And we're seeing right now the nations of the world are lining up around this little nation of Israel. The clouds are all gathering. You can see all the UN countries getting all upset because Israel is trying to defend itself, right? The clouds are gathering, and I believe that we are seeing, even in our day, the foregleams of the Battle of Armageddon which will be fought in this place and that we are talking about today. It is the storm center of the world. But now it's also the peace center of the world. There will be peace upon this earth. One of these days, the lamb and the lion are going to lie down together. And one of these days, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. That's Habakkuk 2.14. And one of these days, the desert will blossom as a rose. And one of these days, Jesus will reign for a thousand years from this place. And there will be peace. Now, that is the reason the Bible uh, tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The peace of Jerusalem. 
There will never be peace on the earth until there is peace in Jerusalem. And there will never be peace in Jerusalem until Jesus Christ rules and reigns here on earth. And so when you are praying for the peace of Jerusalem, you are also praying for the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come again. And so it is the peace center of the world. Now next, it will also be the glory center of the world. Jesus the Lord, the Savior, and the Messiah will rule and reign from the throne of his father David as he is the true seed of Abraham. Now, as one who came from the loins of Abraham and one who came from the loins of David and one who will sit upon the throne of his father David, and Jesus will dispense the covenant blessings of Abraham. How grateful are we for what God is doing in keeping his promise to Abraham so long ago, right? Now, as we think about our friends, the Jewish people, I want us to think about four miracles that are wrapped up in these promises that God gave to Abraham so long ago. I've been going along like a New Yorker really fast here. Any real quick questions? Everybody uh, following along? Okay. All right, so I want to talk about four different miracles that have occurred. So first of all, I want you to think with me just a little bit about the miracle of Israel's generation. 17.5 of the book of Genesis says, And neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, for thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Now, here's a man who is past the time of having children. How old did we say he was? 99 years old, right? He's way past the time of having any children. And here's a man who is without any type of children, without any progeny. And yet God says that he's going to make him a father of many nations. Now, how is that going to come about? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at chapter 18, and starting with verse 9, and there are two angels that are talking with Abraham. So two angels are coming to visit. We're going to talk a lot more about these two angels in chapter 18 when we get there, but I want to cover this right now real briefly, all right? Chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? So this is the angel talking to Abraham. He said, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he, saw, and he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. That means she couldn't have any babies anymore. Now, therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abram, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child, which am old? Now, is there anything that is too hard for our Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord to do? Yeah, no, there isn't, right? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, notice that Sarah's eavesdropping on what the angels are telling to uh, Abraham. Now, uh, you'd never expect some wife to be hiding behind the tent listening in on uh, what's going on between the men talking, do you? No, that doesn't happen anymore, does it? No, it's mostly the women doing the talking now, right? <laughs> now, I didn't say that, did I? I'm only saying that because there's only two women in here today, and Faye's not here to whoop up on me. Oh, three women now. I'm sorry. Because Faye's not here to whoop up on me, right? Notice that Sarah was eavesdropping, 
And that's what it means. It was a polite way of saying that she was listening in on what was being said. She's listening in as the angel tells Abraham, now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken with age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself. Now, she just kind of giggled. It didn't get out. It bubbled all up inside of her. She's thinking about this, and she says, after I'm waxed and old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh? Well, why is she laughing? Now, listen, God knows when you laugh, even when you laugh on the inside, when it doesn't come out. He knows when you are asking questions, right? And so the angel asked, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child, which am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord, the angel asked? Now, I want you to put a big star by that question. And the Lord goes on telling Abraham at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now right here is the miracle of the generation of this nation Israel. When the promise first came to Abraham that he was going to be the father of many nations, and that he was going to have a son, he was 70 years old. And Sarah was 60 years old when the promise first came. So 30 more years have passed since God first told Abraham this promise. 30 more years have worn on and slipped by when, and when the son was finally born. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. Now can you imagine this old, 100 year old man with a cane walking around? It's a boy! It's a boy! I've got a boy! Yeah! Yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah. 100 years old, and here he is, and he has a son. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. Every Jew walking upon the face of the earth today is here as a result of a miracle birth. Israel is a miracle nation. God began this nation with a miracle. And incidentally, our Jewish friends ought not to have difficulty believing in the miracle of the virgin birth. Because their entire race began with a miracle birth. Israel is a miracle nation. Her history began with a miracle. It continues with a miracle. It will be consummated with a miracle. And when you get home, I want you to read what the Bible says about the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, concerning this miracle birth. Paul tells us, in short, that Abraham had hope against hope. He believed in God even when his life processes were dead, that God was able to bring life out of death. He took death that was in the body of Sarah, death in the body of Abram, and he brought life from death. So therefore, we ought not to have difficulty also believing in what? The resurrection of God's dear Son, or Jesus Christ, because it is God who gives life where there is death. Now next, not only do I want you to notice the miracle of her generation, but secondly, I want you to notice the miracle of her preservation. The state of Israel is what I'm talking about. Verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed, and after, thy, and after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now, notice what God says says, I'm going to establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. This means there are going to be nations and people generation after generation everlastingly. 
And what is God saying here? God is saying that the, uh, the nation of Israel is absolutely indestructible. Absolutely indestructible. God prophesied to Abram and to Moses and others that Israel would be disobedient and that Israel would be dispersed, that Israel would be discredited, but that Israel would not be destroyed. The promise that God made to Abraham is an everlasting promise. Now that old devil, he's tried to exterminate God's ancient people so many times. But the king of Egypt could not diminish the Jew. The Red Sea could not drown the Jew. Jonah's whale could not digest the Jew. The fiery furnace could not devour the Jew. The gallows of Ammon could not hang the Jew. The nations of the world have not been able to assimilate the Jew. And the dictators of this world have not been able to annihilate the Jew. And the Arab nations will not be able to overcome the Jew. That's what the Bible says. They are God's people by an everlasting covenant. And I notice that when other people have left their homeland and have traveled to other parts of the world, they've generally been assimilated by, into that uh, culture, right? They have been merged with those other countries to such a degree that many times it's difficult to find them existing still as a people. They are blended and merged and assimilated. But after 18 centuries of dispersion, the Jews are still Jews, having their traditions, having their laws, having their statutes, having their language. For Jesus said that this generation shall not pass, and the word generation shall not pass, that word generation means this race, this stock, this breed, this kind, meaning the Jew, shall not pass till all these things have been fulfilled. And that's in Matthew 24, 34. Now the Jews are like a Gulf Stream in the middle of the ocean. Let me ask you, have you ever been in a boat off the coast of Florida and seen the Gulf Stream in the ocean? Have any of you guys been out there? Now I haven't either, but you might ask, well, how can there be a stream in the ocean? Because it's all water, right? So how can there be a separate stream? Well, if you go out in a boat about three miles off the shore of Palm Beach, you're going to see this stream in the ocean, and it's called the Gulf Stream. Now, as you head out, you will go through a gorgeous aqua blue ocean. And suddenly, you'll see that there is this clean, sharp line of demarcation in the water. And at times, it looks as though somebody has taken a mighty bottle of indigo ink and poured it into the ocean. It is a river of deep purple and blue just flowing through in a northward direction, flowing through the Atlantic Ocean. Now, the wonder is just how sharp and how clear that demarcation is. You can see the change in the color from the blue to the indigo to the blue again on the other side of the Gulf Stream. And, and over here is the aqua water, and over here is the deep purple and indigo water, and that line is just so sharp. So why don't the waters mix? You know, I looked around and I tried to find there's all kinds of scientific theory, but I don't know why the waters don't mix. God just keeps them separate, and that's good okay with me. I, I, I just I like to, to see the wonder of it all, right? But I know that the Jewish nation has been the same, correspondingly the same way. They flow through the oceans of mankind, and they keep themselves distinct and separate. It is the miracle of her preservation. Now, there are some people who are afraid that this kind of person will not last upon the face of the earth. 
to understand this, you've got to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I want you to see what God says in the book of Jeremiah. Here's what you'd have to do to exterminate the Jewish nation. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. So what is God saying right here? God is saying for you to destroy the Jews, you would first have to of all destroy the power that regulates the universe. You would have to snatch the sun and the moon and the stars from the hand of God. You could no more destroy Israel than you could destroy the universe or measure the heights of the heavens. And every Jew upon the face of the earth today is a living sermon to the testimony of the faithfulness of God to Abraham so long ago. What God has said, God will do. God says that it is an everlasting covenant. And I want to tell you, the same God that keeps His promise to Abraham is the same God that keeps His promises to me and you, for they are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, I I really thank God for this nation of Israel, not only for the miracle of her generation and the miracle of her preservation, The indestructible Jew has left his mark upon history and he stands beside the grave of his persecutors. Did you know that the Jews are less than 0.19% of the world's population? Think of that. Less than 19 hundredths of 1%. And yet more than 12% of all the honors in science, in health, in medicine, in music, in philosophy and in public life, have been garnered by these amazing people. That Nobel Prize is one of the highest prizes that men of learning confer upon one another. And in the last 50 years, one-third to one-fourth of the Nobel Prizes have been given to these people who only represent 19 hundredths of 1% of the population. So why is this? I believe that God, in a very special way, has His hand upon these people. These are the people of destiny. Now, you can study history and find some amazing things. Did you know that it was a Jew that financed Christopher Columbus's voyage to find this new world? Did you know that on board that ship when Columbus set sail was a Jew and he was the very first man to set foot upon these new, uh, new shores? You guys know that? Did you know that a Jew, Hiram Solomon, financed George Washington and the Revolutionary War as we fought for our independence for the British. Did you know that? You don't realize what an influence these people have had on your life. So, have you guys ever taken an aspirin when you have a headache? You ever taken an aspirin? I have to take a baby aspirin every day. So, but Bear was a Jew. The man who invented Bear, uh, uh, invented aspirin and gave us the Bear aspirin was a Jew. And he was the one who gave us the aspirin. Now, have you ever heard of a vaccine for polio? Well, Salk and Sabin, they were Jews. 
Have you ever had uh, the need to take digitalis because you had a heart difficulty? Well, Trobe, the surgeon that created it, was a Jew. Have you gone to the dentist and let him put Novocaine in your gums uh, so as to deaden the pain? Aren't you glad you got that? Yeah, they used to not have have anything to deaden the pain. That dentist went in there and started pulling things around, right? Now, you can be very thankful for Einhorn, who was a Jew who invented Novocaine. Now, when you went to get married, now they don't do it anymore, but most of us who are as old as we are, you had to take a certain kind of test, a blood test, right? Well, it was called the Wasserman test. And Wasserman was a Jew. And when you had an infection, the doctor prescribed for you streptomycin. Have you ever heard of streptomycin? It's an antibiotic. Well, Waxman, a Jew, gave us that. Now, perhaps you had difficulty and have gone to a psychiatrist and had psychoanalysis performed on you. Well, you know what? Freud was a Jew. He was the father of psychoanalysis. Now, perhaps you've given money to the Salvation Army to help people, or perhaps you received help from the Salvation Army during a, a tragedy. Well, the mother of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was a Jew. Now, Perhaps you've gone to school and studied philosophy. Well, Spinoza was a Jew. Now, as a matter of fact, the history revolves around the names of six Jews. Moses, Jesus, Paul, Mark, Freud, and Albert Einstein. Right? Albert Einstein was a Jew. Right? Now, I want you to understand that when I list Jesus in those names, I'm not trying to put him on a plane with those others. Now, we're going to speak, uh, speak of Alexander the Great, and Napoleon the Great, and Caesar the Great, but never Jesus the Great. He is Jesus, the one and only. And I want you to know that. But I want you to know also that he is a descendant of Abraham, that he is a son of David, and think of the miracle of the preservation of this race and the blessings that it has given us. But I want you to think of another miracle, not only the miracle of uh, Israel's generation, not only the miracle of their preservation, but I want you to think of the miracle of their restoration. Verse 8, chapter 17 says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee, land where thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God tells Abraham that he has given to Abraham and his seed all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, possession, and I will be their God. Now, I believe that God meant exactly what he said. I believe that even on the reconstituted earth, and I mean after the millennial reign of Christ, after the earth has been destroyed by fire and reconstituted, it will still belong to Abraham and his seed. The land that God has given, even on the reconstituted earth, will still belong to Abraham and his seed. I believe everlasting means exactly what that word means, everlasting, right? Now, I want you to just think what is celebrated every year since Israel became a nation on May 14, 1948. It was on this day that the Republic of Israel was formed. And a nation was born in a day. And it was a miracle. And the Bible tells us in Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, that God is going to regather them, that God is going to plant them in their, line, uh, in their land, 
And then God says they will no more be plucked out. No more be plucked out. Amos uh, 9, 14, and 15. And I believe that they are there to stay. Now, it is a miracle of their restoration. Next is the miracle of their regathering. It was a military miracle. Now, did you know that when this nation was born, there were approximately 650,000 Jews living in the nation of Israel? In 1948, when the powers that be, the UN and so forth, declared the statehood of Israel, 650,000 Jews lived in the land of Israel. Do you know what they were surrounded with? They were surrounded by 40 million Arabs. 650,000 Jews surrounded by 40 million Arabs. 40 million hostile people who vowed and declared that the Jews would not establish a nation there. And they would be driven into the sea. And when you consider also at this particular time, just 24 hours before May 14, 1948, a Jew could be arrested for even carrying a gun. And then one day later, he was expected to defend himself against six Arab states with 40 million Arabs in it. So they went to work. They secreted guns all around. They bought ammunition wherever they could. They took boilerplate and they welded it to the side of school buses to make tanks. They took hose handles and broomsticks and anything that looked like a rifle barrel and they pretended it was a gun so as to frighten the enemy. But they also used firecrackers instead of bullets to make it sound like the battle was even stronger and more fierce than it was. And the Arab Legion, they attacked. And they came with all of their fierceness. And they came from Iraq and from Lebanon and from Syria and from Egypt, and they attacked. Now, I don't have time to tell you the miracles of some of those battles, but it really is an interesting history if you want to get into it. Yet I do want to tell you some of the most amazing things that took place. In one battle, 20,000 Arabs were captured by just 400 Israelis. Can you imagine that? David and Goliath all over again, right? And by the time the UN, the United Nations, got around to calling for an armistice, these little people who were supposed to be exterminated were 150 miles into Egyptian territory and taking more ground every moment. Now, how do you explain that? Well, the only way I can explain it is that it, that fight was fixed from the very beginning. Right? Now, 20 years later, how do you explain the Six-Day War in 1967? It was lightning fast, Right? Just like that. And Jerusalem, the capital city that we're going to talk about in just a moment, came into the hands of the Israelis. Now, I can't explain it anyway, except that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, I don't want you to think for one little moment that God loves a Jew any more than he loves a Gentile, or that God loves a Jew more than he loves an Arab. Don't ever misinterpret what I am saying. God does love the Jews. God does love the Gentiles, and God does love the Arabs. I'm just talking to you about God who is sovereign in history. And what God has said He's going to do, God is going to do. And I want to tell you, all the evil mechanizations and all the Machiavellian plans of men are not going to be able to change that one bit. What God has determined that He is going to do, He is going to do. Amen? Amen. Now when they came back into the land, this was a military miracle. But not only was it a military miracle, but it was a sociological miracle. 
They came back to Israel from 61 different countries, and they all spoke different languages. They had different backgrounds. There was one noted sociologist who said it's going to take them three generations for these people to become a nation. Now, he meant about 100 years. It was going to take 100 years for them to become a nation. Now, later on, that same noted sociologist came back and said, I have to eat my words. They became a nation almost immediately. So it was a sociological miracle. But it was also an agricultural miracle. 60% of the land that they took over was desert. And it was a very small parcel of land to begin with. And it was only rains uh, in the winter. It's very arid and it's very dry. And yet with massive water projects, with horticulture and agriculture and with irrigation, they are causing that desert to bloom as a road. As you ride through that land and you see orange groves and you see lush cotton and you can see crops. And many times three crops are harvested off the same field in one year. Now, depending upon the list you use, Israel is one of 10 nations in the world that raises enough food to feed itself. There are only 10 nations listed uh, that can do that, and it is becoming it, uh, the breadbasket of Europe. They have taken the Jezreel Valley, which was once a malaria-filled swamp, and they have drained it, and they are farming it now. And they are growing avocados. And they are growing plums and peaches and strawberries and cotton and bananas. And they are producing record-breaking milk cows. I got so many milk cows over there, they're not called Holsteins, they're called Goldsteins. They, 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 are, they are producing these record-breaking dairy products and so forth. Now, how do you explain that? I believe that's a fulfillment of prophecy. Not only is it the restoration of the nation a military miracle, not only it is, is it a sociological miracle, and not only is it an agricultural miracle. Goodness, I'm starting to run out of time, aren't I? It's a linguistic miracle. Now, do you know what language they are studying over there now? Do you know what language they're speaking? Hebrew. That language, a hundred years ago, no one spoke Hebrew except an academic person. It was not spoken by any people. It was a dead language. Now, no one knows where, uh, anywhere where a dead language has been revived. But it is right there. And you know what's happening? Those little children are going to school and they're learning Hebrew in school. And then the children are coming back and teaching the mother and the father to speak in the native tongue. And did you know that old, that old Testament Amos could come back to Tel Aviv and walk down the streets of Tel Aviv today and speak his Old Testament Hebrew and carry on a conversation with people today. It's a linguistic miracle. And I believe it's what God is saying here when he says, I'm going to give you this land as an everlasting possession. So next I want us to think about one final thing today as we think about this miracle nation and the covenant that God made with Abraham. Think not only about the miracle of her restoration, but think with me about the miracle of her regeneration. Verse 8 says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So look at the last part of verse 8. And God says, All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now listen to me now. God has not given up on these people. God loves them, and many of them love Him. And God says, I will be their God. And there is a prophecy that tells us that in the last days, 
there's going to be a wholesale turning of God's ancient people to faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that with all of my heart that that's going to occur. And I believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And I want you to see what's going to happen. We know that the world is going to face some dark days. And we know there's coming a time on this earth that the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. But we also know that a great good is going to come out of this tribulation. Notice what's going to happen. We're going to see it happening uh, here today already, but, but it's going to really happen in the great tribulation. Zechariah 12.2 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now, it seems to me that in uh, many ways world opinion is turning against Israel because of the OPEC nations and the oil-rich nations. And some of our loyalties that we used to have seem to be ebbing away. And the nations seem to be gathering a noose around little old Israel. Now, some people think that they're paranoid, that when Israel says they're uh, concerned. And I, but I believe you would be, too, if you were in a situation that they're in. I want to tell you something. America had better keep her uh, standing and standing by Israel because God says those that bless Israel, he'll bless. And those that curse Israel, he'll curse. But notice what's going to happen during the tribulation period. Zechariah said that all the nation, all the people of the earth, are going to be gathered against it. Zechariah 12.3 says, And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. And all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, through all, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Now, Every man, woman, and boy on this earth are not going to uh, set aside the decrees of God. God is saying, in effect, you go against me, you're going against yourself. Old Benjamin Franklin told Thomas Paine once, when you spit against the wind, you spit in your own face, right? Now listen, what God uh, says is that all these people that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. But... I want you to see what God is going to do here. In these dark days, see what is going to happen. Zechariah 12, 9 and 10. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So God says, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then notice this blessed promise in verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. And you know that very same grace of God that saves you, that gives you everlasting life, is the same grace that is going to save the Jews. And here's something very special indeed. God says, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. So who is speaking in this verse? The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. Jehovah is speaking. Jehovah God says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now you think about this. This is an Old Testament text. How can God be pierced? I'll tell you how. God became flesh and God hung on a cross. Now, the Bible speaks of the church, which God hath purchased with what? His own blood in Acts 20, 28. Whose blood was shed upon the cross? The blood of God. 
God can be pierced when God becomes a human. When God becomes the Messiah of Israel, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. That is, they shall understand when the scales fall from their eyes, as they did from the eyes of the Apostle Paul, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And I want you to see a blessed verse in Zechariah 13.1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanliness. Now there's an old hymn by William Cowper who has these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You guys know that hymn? Now, we don't sing that very much anymore, but, uh, but uh, some of us know those hymns. So Jesus tells us, In that day shall they, they shall look upon me, their Messiah, and they shall call him out, and he'll hear and answer. And Paul says, And so all Israel shall be saved in Romans eleven twenty six. Now, I thank God for this book. I thank God for these promises and these prophecies. Now, as I read the headlines and I see what's happening, they can, uh, then I can go all the way back to the book of Genesis and see that immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable, unbreakable promise that God made to Father Abraham. What a great God we have. And what great days we are living in. I believe that we are living very close to the time that Zechariah is talking about. And I believe that it behooves everyone listening to us right now to give his or her heart to Jesus to be saved and to trust him and to look upon him. And he will save you if you'll let him. Amen? Amen. Amen.